You've tuned in to Columbia Calling, your first stop for everything you want to know about Columbia. How and where to invest, where to visit. From the Pacific to the Caribbean, the Andes Mountains to the Amazon jungle, Columbia has a slice of everything. Shooting from the hip, answering the questions that need answering. Here's your host, the journalist and hotelier, Richard McCall, shedding some light on the fashionable South American destination of Colombia. It's that time of the week again, folks. This is me, your host, Richard McCall, here in Bogota, Colombia, 2,600 meters closer to the stars. And this is episode 362 of the Colombia Calling podcast. Thank you again. To all of those who tune in and, of course, send us feedback, I'd like to apologize for last week's connection and in particular apologize to Rafael Vargas of Sudaca Cerveceria because, of course, you know, the person agreeing to come on and chatting deserves to have a better platform upon which to um, publicize their business and, uh, of course, share news about what's going on. So uh, that's my apology to them there. But uh, this is episode 362, and we've had great episodes so far this year, and I think you've enjoyed definitely our chat with uh, the CEO of Chiron, Alvaro Torres, and of course, the former minister of uh, the economy here in Colombia, Juan Carlos Echeverri. Then, of course, a chat with my wife, <laughs> which everyone seems to have enjoyed and have put me in the corner a little bit. Uh, but anyway, I think I think I showed a certain degree of humility there. Uh, this week's show is uh, a different show again. We've taken on a more serious topic, and we're taking we're talking to Tom Gatehouse of the Latin America Bureau. He's a writer and researcher uh, for this great. Um, editorial outfit so check it out it's lab.org so it's lab.org and we'll be talking about the issues of well large-scale mining in uh, in colombia and indeed in the whole region of south america and the effects and the socio-environmental issues it's created so we'll be talking about this and the book that he's writing at the moment due out in the spring of 2022 and of course we'll have him back on i i would assume nearer to the launch to talk about it and the reception and so on this is an important episode. Next week, we'll be back uh, and uh, lightening things up a bit. And we'll be talking to Eddie White, the Australian artist who's been doing caricatures around Colombia and, of course, got in a little bit of trouble for his caricature of women from Medellin. And, of course, you'll remember if you're here in Colombia that that made the front pages and it made the mainstream media here in Colombia about that. But we'll discuss that and some of his anecdotes and what he might have done differently of course, uh, uh, as an artist, and you know, I suppose, in an attempt not to offend his adopted uh, home country at the moment. So, uh, of course, stay tuned for news about that. And, and then I've got other people lined up for the coming months, and hopefully, some interesting journalism-oriented uh, uh, stories for you as well. For the meantime, we're going to leave you in the capable hands of Emily Hart once more. Thank you for all the feedback on her news. She's been incredibly popular and, well, such a great help to me and added a certain dimension, I think, to this podcast. So we'll leave it over to her on the news segment and then we'll be back with Tom Gatehouse of the Latin America Bureau. Of course, if you want to support us, let's check out patreon.com, patreon.com, Columbia Calling, and for as little as $2 a month, you can, you know, help support and uh, promote the podcast a little bit. So thank you again and don't go away.
I'm Emily Hart, and these are your top stories for the week of February 9th, 2021. Escalating violence in the city of Buenaventura, Colombia's key port on the Pacific Ocean, has sparked protests demanding government action. In January alone, there were 21 murders in Buenaventura. Clashes between gangs have led to a spate of homicides and the displacement of hundreds of families in the city. Every night, and even in broad daylight, there have been shootings in the streets and there are constant patrols by armed men. According to the Human Rights Ombudsman's Office, the dispute for control between factions of criminal gang La Local puts the lives of more than 170,000 citizens at risk. La Local are a group related to Colombia's biggest criminal group, the Clan del Golfo. Meanwhile, the Clan del Golfo's second-in-command was killed in Chocó by the government this week. Nelson Darío Hurtado Simanca, alias Marihuano or El Cabo, was a notorious drug trafficker and was believed to have had 1,000 armed men under his command. The U.S. Embassy in Bogota has published the key points of new President Biden's policy in Colombia. Among these is the implementation of the peace accord, a potential point of tension for the Colombian president, as Biden believes in its implementation, while President Ivan Duque has historically been critical of the accord and reticent in its implementation during his presidency. Other priorities include the fight against drug trafficking and transnational crime, a regional response to the crisis in Venezuela, trade expansion and climate change. President Ivan Duque has announced new actions against the murder of social leaders, including the supposed strengthening of statistics by unifying government bodies under one methodology. Previously, the Human Rights Ombudsman kept an independent record of these crimes, which served as a counterweight to the government's figures. The new unified figures may generate mistrust, as the key bodies are now all headed by close allies of the president. Farmers in the Department of Antioquia have announced the anti-narcotics police have carried out illegal crop eradication. Farmers who grow coca, the base material for cocaine, have reported that despite their being part of a supported government crop substitution programme, police have been arriving and destroying their crops. The communities are demanding the government prioritise voluntary substitution over forced eradication, as was agreed in the peace accords. In other places, meanwhile, the opposite problem is being reported, as the figures for destruction of the crop are allegedly being inflated by Colombia's military. In coronavirus news, case numbers continue to fall at around 6,000 new cases yesterday, down from a daily high of 18,000 in mid-January. Colombia's vaccine tracking application is now in action. The app will inform people when their turn to be vaccinated has come. Colombia has not yet, however, administered a single vaccine. That was this week's news. Now back to Colombia Calling with Richard McCall. And we're back. This is the third segment of episode 361 of the Columbia Calling Podcast. I'm here in Montpós, Bolívar. That's five and a half hours south from Cartagena in Colombia's Caribbean region. And my very special guest this week is Tom Gatehouse. Uh, He's in Bristol in the UK at this moment, and he's a writer and researcher for the Latin American Bureau. Of course, he's uh, the author of a very important book which will come out in the spring of 2022 and we like to promote and support books of this nature it's entitled the heart of our earth community resistance to mining in latin america so welcome on the columbia calling podcast tom thank you for being here thank you for having me it's a it's a great pleasure and and you know what as the i followed the latin america bureau for a long time and i've actually now done some work for the latin america bureau and uh, i like the the style of let's say campaigning it's you know politically aware publications that are out there 
trying to raise an awareness of what's going on, of course, in Latin America. And of course, there's all sorts of issues here in Colombia, but in the region as a whole, as what you are dealing with mining, and we know about mining and the extractive industries, particularly here in Colombia, uh, it's seen as a cash cow for the country from a political class. But at the same time, it's, you know, obviously incredibly damaging in the environment and the communities and so on. So tell us a little bit and give us an overview of this book that you're working on that will be out in 2022. Sure. Well, at Latin America Bureau, we've been increasingly concerned with issues around mining in recent years. All of Latin America has has undergone a, a kind of a revolution in the mining industry since more or less the early 90s, uh, coinciding with you know high prices of uh, of minerals and and metals and so on. And uh, of course, Col- this, Colombia is no exception. Um, so we. With this book, we want to put the focus on the communities. So talk to people on the ground in mining affected communities, listen to their stories, document the impact on these communities by large mining operations and find out how they have been resisting and fighting back. Perfect. Perfect. So you are collating, for example, how many chapters or how many case studies do you hope to make it into the book uh, for next year? So I think the the final book will have around 10 chapters um, thematically organized. So looking at issues such as water is obviously a massive concern. Uh, also COVID-19 and how this has impacted the mining industry, how mines have continued to operate during the pandemic. Um and also how how mines operate, so how mining companies operate when they when they come to communities, how they establish themselves, the community relations strategies that they use, what benefits they offer to, to communities to to obtain what they call the social license to operate and so on. When we talk about the social license to operate, it's like we'll build you a school, we'll build you a road, something of that nature. Yeah, exactly. So, so, I mean, sometimes it's it's a bit more um, basic than that. It's simply paying people off. But yeah, lots of the time it's providing these kind of services. So, you know, health, education, maybe a road, etc., which are really the duty of the state. But often, you know, mines tend to be located in remote areas where perhaps the state has never had that much of a presence or has never been particularly bothered with establishing a presence and investing in um, the local community. You might just be uh, talking about the whole of Colombia's rural area there in that one. If we bring it into a Colombia perspective at this moment, and I know there's mining all over the region, we can say Peru and Ecuador and Brazil and Argentina, Chile, everything. But if we take it into a Colombia perspective, the mine I think of when we discuss issues, and actually it makes the news a fair bit here, but I 
I, my debate is whether anything really happens is, of course, El Cerejón in the Guajira. So this is an open pit coal mining uh, operation. Tell us a bit. I think you've researched this uh, considerably. So, yeah, Cerejón is something of an emblematic case and will certainly feature in some form in, in the book that I'm working on. Um, it was developed in the late 70s, it opened in the, in the 80s, and um, it's had enormous social and environmental impacts during the time that it's been operating. It's displaced dozens of communities, so not only indigenous communities, but also Afro-Colombian and Campesino communities. And... I mean, it's it's vast. It's the largest open pit coal mine in Latin America and one of the largest of its type in the world. And it's still going. It, I mean, it's still export, extracting vast amounts of coal. Um, it has its own railway and shipping terminal. So it extracts the coal, puts the coal on trains, sends it directly to port and then off to global markets particularly to the US and Asia and to a lesser extent Europe. So, I mean, this is a big one. And does it seem that, it, I mean, you know, you sort of think, okay, so it was started all those years ago. Is there any end to the extraction there? Will the coal run out at any point? Can we sort of point to a fact going, well, okay, you know, it's only got uh, five more years or something like that, or, it, but it's, or is it just going to keep going and keep going and keep going? Well, I think what we'll do for Serracón ultimately is the, the changing dynamics of the energy market. Mm -hmm. So, for example, Europe is already um, export, uh, importing much less coal from Colombia than, than it used to, um, in no small part thanks to climate policy. So European governments are gradually phasing out coal. Um, in the US as well, the coal is is facing increasing competition from other sources of energy, so renewables, but also fracking. So, uh, I mean, I, I think, you know, there is still coal at Serracón and they'll continue to mine it for the moment. But I think in the end, it will it will cease to be profitable just because of the changing dynamics of the market. But that's what will do for it rather than any kind of serious human rights or environmental concern, I think. Yeah, definitely. Now, the, the people mining, is it Anglo-Colombian? I can't remember who the, the overall company is there. So it's, uh, it's owned by three companies who each have a, an equal stake in the business. It's uh, BHP, who are Anglo-Australian, Glencore, which is Anglo-Swiss, and Anglo-American, which is British. Okay, Anglo-Americans, British, Glencore, okay, the BHP. And, um, but I, I do understand there's sort of a, a power struggle within those three, someone to sell, someone to move on, but again, it's still producing. So, you know, we're not gonna, we won't see it going away anytime soon, but perhaps I know that you've had um, meetings or contact with uh, representatives of the YU community, of course, for those of you out there, the YU are the original uh, people of this region, you know, this desert region in the northeast of Colombia that borders with uh, Venezuela, and there's very much a fluid 
border area between uh, Colombia and Venezuela up there. Lots of all sorts of different issues that affect the region, not just the environmental issues. But uh, I know that you've had contact with some of the communities. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about them and what they've said? Yeah, so I've been present at events in London where the YU have come and spoken to um, to at universities, to students and academics and so on. Um, also, as part of the Labs Voices of Latin America project in 2017-2018, uh, 2017, we included some interview material that one of our contributors um, got from a member of an Afro-Colombian community which was forcibly displaced by Serrajon back in the early 2000s. Forcibly displaced? So, they, I mean, they moved them out in order to expand, extend explorations? Yes, yeah. So, I mean, the mine has gradually expanded over, it, over its lifespan in the process, uh, displacing many communities. This, um, he's a, an activist and a poet called... Uh, Rogelio Arrogoces, I think, um, and his his he's on YouTube reciting some of his poetry about this uh, this eviction. If anyone's interested, but anyway, yeah. So he's he he told one of our collaborators, you know, his story, the story of the eviction, and so on. And you know, it's it, it's very kind of brutal stuff. I mean, they were, you know, they were removed from their homes by the by the police and security forces sort of shock troops to make way for bulldozers i mean but, okay yeah and of course this is something that goes on around colombia i would say from a daily to weekly basis about the displacement due to the uh, uh, you know the mineral resources available in this country, and as people will refer to it in in the mainstream press, of course, the you know the curse of the developing world. Uh, these things. So, I mean, you talk to these people, and, the, and you heard the brutal stories, and you are trying to draw some sort of awareness of this in the book. Um, I, I I just wonder you know, how effective we can be. As you say, at the end of it, it's the changing global policy towards uh, these fossil fuels that will make uh, more of a difference. Perhaps perhaps publishing this book then will, I don't know, it will push more people towards demanding uh, you know, renewable fuels, fuels within their neighborhoods or renewable energies from for, for wherever you know wherever they live i don't i don't know what your end game in this is not just to write the uh, consummate piece of literature on what's going on in latin america well i think as with most lab publications it's it's really about awareness raising and it's about bringing the voices of people who perhaps may receive little or no attention in, in the English-speaking world to English speakers and making people aware of these kinds of issues. And I think particularly with mining as well, because of the dynamics of markets, there's there's a real relation with, mm -hmm. with the UK and with what we do here and how we consume and for, you know, also how we bank. Um, you know, these three companies who uh, run Serrajon all have headquarters in London and they're all over the years have been supported by 
UK banks, UK investors, pension funds, and so on. So, yeah, to make people aware of these kinds of issues, perhaps lots of UK pension holders may not have realized in, in past years that some of their pension money was being used to finance Serrajon or similar projects. And, and in, your, in your text, you will name and shame these pensions? Uh, I mean, we. I will be looking at the kind of the financial architecture of it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how far I'll go into that side of things because I think, as much as possible, we want to keep the focus on the communities and the stories they have to tell. Yeah, and of course, I mean, thinking about this and thinking out loud in this moment, of course, from the security of well, where I'm sitting and the security of where you're sitting, we can talk openly about this. But but you know, people like uh, Rogelio. It's it's a different story on the ground. Colombia is, you know, about the most dangerous place in the world now for environmental activists uh, and the tragic uh, and well, all killings are unnecessary, but the tragic and, uh, and, and nefarious acts that took place recently in the, in the killing of the of one environmental activist who's just, you, you know, his was involved in in trying to preserve and protect a, a species of bird and the interior of the country. I mean, it's as trivial as it sounds, but he, you know, it's important, of course, and he lost his life. I mean, this is the reality of what goes on here in, in Colombia and around and around the region. I mean, we think of Berta Cáceres as well. We think of others. Names come to the fore, but they are they're just names. It's a long list of people losing their lives for this. And I, I find I think um, for me to be able to pursue the financial side of these, where where does the money go on? It's sort of like the uh, I know that in the town of Aracataca, uh, where Gabriel Garcia Marquez was born and, and raised, they refer to the coal train there as as carrying blood coal. Uh, so in a sort of reference to I guess blood diamonds and so on. I think. They know, and they've been displaced in that area, and they've lived through various generations of environmental exploitation from cotton to banana, and then, of course, the coal trains going through, and then whatever else is going on there. So, I mean, this is a, a, a real issue here, and, and perhaps we can think about it, you know, the mining investments. I know that the UK, as you said, as we mentioned, has has companies invested in this. But of course, one of the biggest uh, countries would also be be Canada as well, surely. Yeah, I mean, Canada, I'm not sure of the exact figure, but Canada accounts for most mining investment and activity in Latin America. And, and China? China is increasingly important, but the, the main player in the region at the moment is definitely Canada. Hmm. Well, time to come clean here, totally, as my father was in, uh, a geophysicist. It got, it, may he rest in peace, but he was involved not so much in mining, but in petroleum exploration all around the world. So before anyone starts trolling me, saying, we know where you come from, complete clarity and transparency, I, you know, I, come, from, I come from this. Uh, but hopefully I'm you know, uh, doing something a little bit different these days. So, uh, I mean, I, I would suppose that the Canadian politics and policy towards this was largely driven by, a, I want to say, a Harper government when Prime Minister Harper was in, because he was a 
Calgarian or a, a, an Albertan, so which is the you know the heart of the mining industry, the financial setup in Canada, and he he would have pushed this kind of uh, this kind of a, a economic policy, but. You have to have economic policy in the country as well, like Colombia, in order to support this this kind of thing. So perhaps you could take us through maybe some of the political drivers. You think of Uribe, Santos, Duque. Perhaps you could talk us uh, a little bit through this. Sure. Well, it's really since the late 90s that Colombia has tried to open up to mining. And by, by mining here, I mean hard rock metal mining. It has a longer history of coal mining. But since the late 90s, um, Andres Pastrana uh, introduced a, a new mining code with more generous conditions for foreign mining companies. Uh, and he was followed by Uribe, who um, kind of radically attempted to, to overhaul the sector. Um, mining concessions increased eightfold during Uribe's eight years in power. Um, he established more competitive royalty rates. He gave mining companies tax breaks. He gave uh, foreign investors the same status as national investors and so on. So really a whole swathe of um, measures designed to make the country a more attractive destination for, for investment in mining. And after Uribe, it's been more of the same. So Santos uh, designated mining as one of his um, locomotives of development, was the, the phrase he used, um, which in terms of the, the money involved was by far the most significant one. And then more recently, Duque has, has also been slashing environmental regulations and attempting to attract mining investments. So it's really one kind of long line of continuity, and it's hard to see this changing anytime soon. Well, that, I mean, that's my point to the end of it. I don't see, I don't see uh, a political party coming in being able to uh, alter this. I don't see that happening. And even a progressive would be very careful about that. He would be very uh, wary about upsetting, let's say, a, a, a careful balance, uh, although it's not balanced right now. So but we talked about okay, the locomotora, the, the progreso, I guess it is, and so on. I mean, we think about other uh, regions of Colombia. Have you done any research on the uh, Paramo del Santurban near to Bucaramanga, which was essentially, I think, the Saudi Arabian government gave a sum of money to the Santos government for, and it went to the money went towards the peace process. But of course, it was a hat tip to be able to give them the rights to later exploit the Santurban. Paramo and these paramos, these high altitude plains, are, of course, the the country's water source, uh, amongst others. But uh, the country's uh, incredibly delicate water source, and apparently there's gold up there. And this has led to demonstrations in Bucaramanga, uh, big demonstrations. But again, it's now no longer on the front page. It's now no longer discussed. So, I, I have you? Are you going to address this one in in the book? Uh, I don't know this case specifically, but um, yeah, I mean, there are mining concessions now all over Colombia, which overlap with national parks and protected areas, including the Paramos. 
and 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 gold in particular of course is is you know and i think not just of the legal gold mining but the illegal and the artisanal gold mining i mean it's huge it's an absolutely immense business and there's parts of sort of northern antioquia which are run in their entirety by illegal groups uh, and yet um and we know it and you can fly you know let's say in a you know a commercial flight from bogota to cartagena which might sort of take in you know take off to the west and then and then go, you'll you'll overfly parts of these areas and you'll see scarred uh, regions where the, you know this open I, I guess where they divert rivers to use the water to then, you know, to, to pressure the earth to find, find gold. I mean, it, and it, it then creates, I don't know, I think it's a, I think it's a, a form of modern slavery for the people on the ground working there. Is, is this a way that you would describe it for the people working in these conditions? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, the illegal gold trade is huge in Latin America and getting bigger. It's been propelled by the events of uh, 2020 and the COVID-19 pandemic with more people now investing in gold. Um, it's a big problem in Peru as well and in Brazil and in Venezuela. And I think in all, in all cases, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's large scale organized crime and it's linked to money laundering, also to drug trafficking, prostitution, including child prostitution, uh, violence and so on. So, I mean, it's a hugely damaging, nefarious activity, both environmentally and, and socially. Um, and, it, you know, it, it spreads kind of destruction and disease almost wherever it goes. I mean, I would say perhaps what differentiates the Colombian case slightly compared to the other countries I mentioned, and I don't just mean in, in terms of gold mining, but in general, is the, the fact that Colombia is just coming out of uh, a civil conflict, which lasted for decades. And so to insert um, the mining industry into this incredibly delicate and sensitive and um, you know, inflammable political context is crazy, really. Well, it's it's it's, it's aggra uh, aggravating an already uh, inflammable situation. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's no coincidence that most of the you mentioned earlier on the the violence that's happening in Colombia now, the killings of environment and human rights defenders most of this is happening in mining and oil areas definitely and i mean you mentioned uh at the very beginning that there's the and you mentioned it just now as well the effect of covid19 can you can you elaborate on that in this period of pandemic yes yeah, so serrejon for example was in the news in november because it, uh, it released a statement saying it had come to an agreement with a local indigenous community that lives on a reserve less than a kilometer away from, from one of the mine's dumps. Uh, this was fiction. The indigenous community immediately released a statement saying that no such agreement existed um, and that the company had negotiated with just one leader and his family rather than the community as a whole. This 
agree, supposed agreement it related to an, an ongoing dispute with this community about uh, the environmental impacts, access to water and so on. And du during which the community appealed to the UN. The UN visited and then uh, released a, a communique on the on the conflict in which the, the UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights and the Environment specifically highlighted the relationship between COVID-19 on the one hand and mining and air pollution on the other. He really stressed the increased vulnerability of this community to serious illness and death from COVID-19 because of the polluted air that they're breathing. Mining in, in Colombia and across Latin America um, most for, by most governments was designated an essential activity. So mines have continued to operate during the pandemic. Yeah, of course. And 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 then you, you also talked about Venezuela. You mentioned Venezuela, the mining. Of course, the lawless situation that's going on there means that people are just taking backhanders and allowing things to happen. I mean, it's, it's a reality. We've seen reports here, and I think they come out with uh, entities like Insight Crime and so on, that much, and I've seen it in El Tiempo, the, the national newspaper, that much of the illegal mining that stems from a certain part of Colombia, I would assume from the Norte de Santander, across the central area into northern Antioquia, and then across into Venezuela, uh, they say that, you know, I think three quarters of all things are, are in some way tied to the ELN guerrillas, the, the Ejército de Liberación Nacional, or National Liberation Army, that even as far into Venezuela. Is this something you found in your, in your investigations? Yeah, well, I, I think all illegal groups, and not just the ELN, but also the paramilitaries, um, criminal groups, drug traffickers, and so on, um, the FARC, when when they were functional, they've all used illegal gold mining to, to a greater or lesser extent to finance their activities. And in a sense, illegal gold mining is, it's, it's easier for them in some ways than, than drug trafficking, for example, because uh, cocaine is illegal in all its forms, whereas gold isn't. And it's very easy to, to if you like, to, to launder illegal gold and to insert it into legitimate markets. So, yeah, I think it's no surprise that it's, um, it's been a source of income for groups like the, the ELN. When we take this gold, which, when they, so let's say, as you said, insert it into legitimate markets, into the formal economy, and with the main countries uh, to receive this gold, do, do we know which they are? Well, I think the, the country which um, imports most gold from, I'm not sure about Colombia, I think maybe maybe from Latin America, I think certainly from Brazil, is, is India. Um, and there was a case, I think, last year of uh, illegal gold mining in, in the north of Brazil, which, yeah, the gold had been... Um, made legit and then it turned up in india and i think in the united arab emirates as well and then of course there's the, again this this is this octopus the tentacles of a 
of how the international financial market works. You know, once it's gone through a couple of these markets, it's completely, uh, I would say, laundered. I mean, that's it, isn't it? It's completely in there. And it's fascinating how it can extend so far. Perhaps I'm being naive in saying that, but it is fascinating. Now, I know that there's a couple of academics who listen to this show, and so I'm going to have to sort of uh, raise the, a question that they will say before... Uh, you know, when, once this goes live, they'll ask this question or make this retort or start trolling me on Facebook or Twitter or so on. But uh, a couple of academics will say, well, yeah, but we all want our cars and our phones, etc. Uh, you know, we all need these things for our everyday existence. Uh, how do we respond to that? What's the most effective response? Well, it's true that... Um uh, an energy transition will depend to some extent on mining for certain metals like lithium and nickel and copper. On the other hand, the energy transition demands a lot more than just simply replacing our current technology with so-called green technology. I read something recently which said that um, if the UK was to replace its entire stock of cars with electric vehicles, that we would need 12% of the world's supply of copper. I mean, this is just not realistic, you know. So it, we also, there's a big discussion to be had about recycling and the circular economy and particularly about reducing consumption. And um, I think this is something which quite often in the discussion about mining and, you know, the so-called green mining is left out yeah and, and just uh, for my listeners green mining how do you want to explain that well i would say this is a a corporate term uh, along with things like responsible mining and sustainable mining used by companies to for propaganda purposes basically the greenwash like um was it clean coal yeah, yeah, something, <laughs> something along those lines, and and so tell us a little bit as we wind this down, and you know I won't take up more of your time, but tell us a little bit about the overview then for Latin America. Where do you feel, with all the research that you've done, is the most pressing uh, country in which uh, these these issues need to be brought uh, to the world's attention? Well, I mean, I think all, all over the region, given the the massive investment in mining that's gone into Latin America over the last over the last few decades, I mean, the standout example, which I think has done more to attract mining investment than anywhere else, is is Peru. But also, I mean, places like Peru and Chile are countries with with a long history of hard rock metal mining. Whereas, I think what's What's kind of interesting about this new or now not so new wave of mining over the region in, in the last few years is that it's it's really expanded into into areas where it had little or no presence before. And I think Colombia is a good example of this. Okay, so, well, I mean, I, you know, because I think about that in Chile, I don't even know what Chile's GDP, um, let's say, uh, extends from mining. But, of course, copper was their, was a, is their big deal. And I know that they were affected immensely with the you know, global economic slowdown. Uh, and uh, they will look 
always to the copper market to enable their economy to stay afloat. So I, it's going to be a tough one to to campaign and and convince uh, the Chilean uh, government, in my opinion. Well, of course, and I think with the global copper demand set to increase because of the energy transition, Chile is going to be a big player in that, without a doubt. There's no chance of, of it winding down copper operations anytime soon. But then, on the other hand, it, I mean, Chile is an interesting example because it's in the middle of a major water crisis. It's experiencing one of the worst droughts in its history. Um, and I mean, there are debates as to to what extent this is caused by mining activity, to what extent it's caused by climate change and so on. But I think there can be no doubt that ramping up mining activity, mining being an extremely thirsty industry, mines consume millions of litres of water every day, that it, it ain't going to help their water crisis. I, I you know, I, we, it's... Do you think, well, actually, before you talk, water crisis, and then, of course, I have to bring in you know, the term that was mentioned, and, of course, it's very topical right now, fracking. Um, and, of course, fracking is to begin here in Colombia under opening uh, open quotation marks, scientific, in the name of scientific research. Of course, it's a way of saying scientific research to be able to, a pseudo-mapping of the aquifers in Colombia, so the underground water sources, because there is no map of these, there is no knowledge of them, so that's what they'll say is, and I've worked on this a little bit, uh, and, and they say, oh, well, you know, we have no map, so we don't know if there are any aquifers under there, but if we start fracking, we'll be able to find the water sources. But then it seems like you've just sort of de defeated the whole process of mapping to protect the aquifers by starting fracking. Is fracking anything you're going to deal with in the book or we're just talking about mining no i think we're just going to be focusing on on mining for for metals and also for for minerals for coal etc but i mean i would say that process of of mapping is kind of typical of exploration and how the industry works and this kind of research is is I mean, government governments in the past haven't done this kind of research because they just don't have the capacity to do it. Then companies go in with their geologists and technicians and so on to do this kind of work. But it's done with the intention of, if it's viable to do so, getting set up and starting work. And, you know, it's with a short term objective in mind. Short term, of course. I'm. I'm curious at the end, I mean, I think we're at this stage, and when you mentioned the copper that required to get every, for example, UK car to be an electric car and so on, we need to meet some happy middle ground. Uh, and I realize that the communities, I mean, the communities are, are, are tantamount to the culture and society of a, of a country, but there has to be a way of, of, of meeting this because the industry is not going away. Yeah, as much as we would w want it to to campaign, and you say this transition in in uh, sources for okay to sources of renewable energies, 
I, I do you do you feel the same way or are you far more no, we really have to we really have to do away uh, with these these uh, projects which are, are are totally damaging on the ground I mean it's a, it's a really big question and I'm not sure it's one one I have an answer to <laughs> I mean I would say that whether you know whether mining can be done in a in a kind of just and equitable fashion I don't know, but what's certain is that if it were to be done so, the sector would look radically different and also prices would be radically different. Costs to companies would be radically different and lots of deposits which are currently being exploited may, in, in that case, they might not be viable. Because, mm. oh, of course, the prices would be far higher in the yeah. sector than for this thing. And then we could refer to it legitimately as green mining, <laughs> not just the, the political uh, greenwash term for internal communications in, in one of these big, uh, big companies. I think uh, interesting, definitely a, a hot topic for, for Colombia and the region and one that will continue to run and run. But uh, Tom Gatehouse, I wish you all the best with the, what remains to be researched, uh, investigated and written of this new book that will be out in spring of 2022 uh, entitled The Heart of Our Earth, Community Resistance to Mining in Latin America. So thank you so much for your time and for sharing your knowledge and, uh, you know, it's a, uh, raising, I hope, some awareness of the brutality on the ground that is taking place in, in particular in Colombia at this time. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. And so in 2022, we'll be able to, or even earlier this year or later this year, we'll be able to pre-order the book. Yes. I'm a bit hazy on those details still, but uh, <laughs> I think um, in, in early 2022, I would expect that you'd be able to pre-order. Yeah. Okay, so keep an eye out on the Latin America Bureau website for that. That's uh, latinamericabureau.org, or is it lab.org, the website? That's correct, yeah. Okay, perfect. So keep an eye out on that. Anyway, there's always interesting publications on there, interesting blogs as well, uh, in which you can follow uh, issues of uh, community action and, and so on, uh, pressing issues of the day in, in most Latin American countries that are covered. So let me take this moment to say thank you to author, investigator, writer, researcher, Tom Gatehouse uh, for the Latin America Bureau here. And uh, of course, uh, all the best to him in this uh, total lockdown that's taking place in the UK and especially in his city of Bristol. I've been Richard McCall here in Montpós, Bolívar. This has been Columbia Calling. Thank you so much, everyone, to listen uh, for listening to this. And of course, please consider backing us on um, Patreon. That's patreon.com, Columbia Calling. For as little as $2 a month, you can make sure that we are financially sustainable uh that's me signing off we'll be back next week with more interesting conversations interviews and so on colombia and related to the region bye bye